Today we continue our study through the Gospel of Mark, from Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to through 13. Normally we would read the text together, but this morning we're going to do it in a little bit of a different way. So listen as the band plays this song for us. Uh, the song that we're going to play in a second is a storytelling of the Transfiguration as told by um, the great storyteller Sufjan Stevens. took the three disciples to the mountainside to pray. His countenance was modified, his clothing was aflame. Two men appeared, Moses and Elijah came, they were at his side. The prophecy, the legislation spoke of whenever he would die. tabernacle place a cloud appeared in glory as an accolade they fell on the ground a voice arrived the voice of God the face of God covered in a cloud Lost in the clouds, 
Good morning. Um, <clears throat> covering a, a story that's actually in Mark, Luke, and Matthew's Gospels this morning, so obviously something very important that all three of them wanted to include it in their Gospel accounts. And um, <clears throat> I want to open us up in prayer uh, before we jump into this uh, kind of talk where going to cover a good amount of theology, you're going to talk about a little bit of prophecy. Um, at first glance, it may seem like, what in the world is going to come out of this uh, section of scripture, but uh, it's actually quite rich, so let's pray and we'll jump right into it. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we ask, God, that your church would be sensitive, mindful of what you are telling us. We ask, God, that uh, this would be more than just theology accumulation or knowing more about your prophetic work, uh, that this is more than even just convictions that we may feel uh, through your word, but God, that this indeed leads us to transformed lives, to transformed lives, to be imitators of you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> As I said, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke all cover this story. And so each of them, just like journalists, will have different perspectives as to what they were covering in regards to it. So I'm going to be jumping back and forth between those three Gospels, mostly staying in the Gospel of Mark. But I'll, I'll, I'll try to let you guys know ahead of time uh, when I'm looking at Luke, when I'm looking at Matthew. Um, <clears throat> John doesn't really reference the event, but he does mention the glory of Jesus and the transfiguration did let John see Jesus's glory. And so he makes reference to seeing the glory of Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 14. And again, I'm sorry, I apologize for our technical difficulties here. And it reads this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So I'm sure John included the transfiguration as part of him seeing Jesus' glory with the many other signs of Jesus' glory when he wrote his gospel account. It's also really important to note that Peter, who wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, he wrote this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. Important because Peter was an eyewitness to the transfiguration. He was there on the holy mountain. And as a side note, many scholars believe this to be Mount Hermon. And in Peter's letter, he reiterates that he was an eyewitness to Jesus' majesty so that non-fictional stories such as this were recorded as an historical event and not some sort of mythology or folklore. Now let's jump to verse 1 of Mark chapter 9. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. There are a few differing opinions as to what this phrase, after it has come with power, means. And I don't find it personally to be a huge deal. So I can agree or disagree with you on what you may think and then just kind of move on. It's not something I'm going to fight about with you. Um, it's not something that alters our faith, I don't believe, and it's not something to be divisive about. And so here are the five main things that scholars believe this phrase means. One of them is that some scholars believe that this is in reference to the resurrection of Jesus and his power. Other scholars think that this is in reference to seeing the expansion of the kingdom of God through the evangelism and the discipleship of the early church. You know, in Acts, it's recorded that five people converted by the time uh, we reach Acts chapter 4. And 3,000 converted at Pentecost. And so some people believe after it has come with power is after this event. Now, some think that it's in reference to Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit. Others think that this is in reference to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, that some will live to see this powerful prophecy come to be. And then fifthly, that there are those who think that it's in reference to the transfiguration itself, which is what happened to Peter, James, and John. Let's head on to verse 2 here, and, and we'll... We'll get back to that. And after six days, Jesus took him with Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. So they did stand there, and they didn't taste death until after the transfiguration. It was six days later that they found themselves to experience Jesus transfigured before them. And so, as you can probably tell where I'm leaning towards already, I lean towards the transfiguration itself. But is it worth Dividing over, not to me. I, if you believe it's resurrection, cool. If you believe it's Pentecost, great. I'd, I'd rather agree with you regarding this matter than be divisive about it and, and then just go grab tacos at Mirancho. Like, that's, that's what I'd prefer, right? So um, I don't think it influences our discipleship to Jesus or anything like that to debate these things. Just laying all those beliefs out there for you. We know... Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him up to the mountain. So what happened during those six days? Well, more than likely, Jesus taught them. It was probably an extension of what happened in chapter 8, verse 31. 
And it reads, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. It's most likely a continuation of that, right? Just two verses ago. And so the, the classroom time came to an end after this six days. And then Jesus led Peter, James, and John up to the mountain for a, a practicum, right? a lab time. Right? And so to the laboratory to experience hands-on what Jesus taught them. And here we go in verse 2, continuing on. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And so very experiential, very lab-like. Any of you taken morph uh, morpho what is it? metamorphosis of invertebrates or anything like that? It's that lab. Nobody? Horrible class. Anyway. Now, why was Jesus up a high mountain anyway? Mark really doesn't give us this insight. Uh, Sufyan writes about it in his song, but actually that's derived from the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 9, we are informed that Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and they went up to the mountain to pray. And in Luke chapter 9, verse 29, Luke wrote, And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. His clothes became radiant, intense white. You couldn't get any more white. And the appearance of his face was altered. According to Matthew chapter 17, verse 2, His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. What is this pointing to? This is pointing to the divine, that this was something divine. And what was recorded for us was beyond our words. This was the best that Matthew, Mark, and Luke could do to describe what was happening. But there was so much more. Listen to what the psalmist wrote. Psalm chapter 104, verses 1 and 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. See, when Peter said, you are the Christ, yes, Jesus is the Christ. Only God covers himself with light as a garment. It was more evidence as to who Jesus is. The same Jesus who calmed the waves and the wind. The same Jesus who forgave sins. The same Jesus who fed thousands. It's the same Jesus who covers himself with light as a garment. All pointing to, yes, he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Still, what is all this transfiguration talk anyway? Why is this even significant? Why do three out of the four gospel writers even record this? Why, what does transfigure even mean? And I kind of alluded to this earlier when I was talking about metamorphosis. The Greek word translated to transfigured is the Greek word metamorpho, which is where we get the word metamorphosis. And we find this Greek word in the transfiguration accounts in Matthew and in Mark, and we find it in a couple of Paul's writings. One of them is Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And this is what Paul wrote. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We find this also in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. 
And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, it's the same Greek word there, into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And those are the only times that that word is used in the entire New Testament. The two gospel accounts and then 2 Corinthians and Romans, that's it. This word transformation, this, this Greek word here, that there was a transformation in Jesus into a manifestation of God that was observed before or after this event, and it's written in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. It's written this. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the world of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. What we have here is an instance when the veil of God's glory was lifted off of Jesus. When Peter, James, and John were able to see for that moment with their own eyes the glory of God, and we'll see how Peter responded to this in verses 5 and 6, which tells us that he really didn't fully understand what was happening. But let's first take notice at these characters here. Let's, let's first notice that Elijah, the prophet who spoke of God's reconciliation, and Moses, the lawgiver, were talking with Jesus in verse 4. Now, this meeting finds the prophecies and the laws fulfilled in Jesus. Right? Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This is really significant. This meeting is very significant between Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. This is a real-life picture of what Jesus said he came to do in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, that he didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. And here he's having this powwow with the guy that came with the law and with the guy that's like the prophet of prophets. And there was Elijah and Moses in a conversation with Jesus proving that, yeah, this is so. This, this is all being fulfilled with Jesus. He didn't come to abolish this. He didn't get those guys over and say, okay, get out of here. Like, no, this is us. We're going to talk about this. And what were they talking about? Luke chapter 9, verse 31. That's Luke tells us. They spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That's what they were talking about. So we don't have to wonder, hey, what were those guys talking about? This. They were talking about the fulfillment. They were talking about the crucifixion. They were talking about Jesus' death. Now, the Greek word for departure in Luke chapter 9, verse 31, it's this word exodus. And so, yes, exodus in what Moses and the Israelites did from Egypt. When they were freed from slavery. When they were liberated from tyranny. And their lives redeemed from death. And so when death passed over them, because a lamb was sacrificed, right, the Passover that they celebrate, a lamb was sacrificed and the blood touched the lintel and they touched the doorposts. And so we see the picture of the cross and the lamb, sacrificial lamb on the lintel and the, and the doorposts. It's all 
signifying what was going to happen with Jesus. And so Luke recorded for us that Moses and Elijah parted from Jesus in chapter 9, verse 33. And going back to Hebrews 1, this is what the author of Hebrews wrote in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So multiple prophets were used by God in the past, but in these last days, it's Jesus who speaks. He fulfills the law and the prophets. Peter, James, and John were eyewitnesses to this incredible interaction between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. But they didn't know what to make of this divine meeting. They didn't, they didn't know what was going on, so he proposes something that's kind of silly. Right? But, but in reality, they're just really terrified at what's happening here. But let's, let's read of the proposition here, Peter. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. No, really? Like... Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Luke wrote in chapter 9, verse 33 of his gospel, that Peter didn't even know what he said. Right, so... Peter's the type of person that talks without thinking. You, you know these people? I know these people. It, they're, they're funny people. And it gets him into trouble sometimes. So for a week, six days, Jesus taught them about how he must suffer, how he was going to be rejected, and he was going to resurrect. Then they go up to the mountain to pray, and they are praying these things. And then they witness Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And then what does Peter have to say after all this incredible stuff? Rabbi, it's good that we're here. You know, he's just not sure what to say. He's not sure about what to even do. Make three tents? Are you kidding me, Peter? Come on, man. Like You got all this training. You're observing this awesome stuff, and the best thing you can do is, like, let's go to REI and, like, pitch some tents. Like, come on. But this is so us. This is how we are. You know, God directs us one way, and as soon as we see an opening for things to go our way, we, we, we change course. You know, Jesus taught about suffering, rejection, death. And as soon as Peter is able to see the glory of Jesus, everything that Jesus talked about that past week and has been praying for is out the door. He wants to seek glory. He wants to forget about the suffering. He wants to forget about the rejection. He wants to forget about the death. Peter wanted to go down the glory trail. Forget that. Look at this amazing stuff. Look at your face is glowing. Like, this is awesome. And that road that didn't have suffering and rejection and death, that's what appealed to Peter. Like, for, forget this. Let, let's stay here. And let's look at this. this. This is great. But then God put a stop to this madness. 
right? Verse 7, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Because he's been talking about suffering, rejection, and death this whole time. Listen to him. Your kind of foolishness, stop. Just stop it. Stop talking. Right? Stop doing. Stop planning. Stop everything. Listen. Listen. Listen to Jesus. Matthew recorded for us in Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, that Peter was still speaking when a bright cloud overshadowed them. So this thing's happening. He's like, oh, three tents, and we can go shopping. And he's just talking, talking, talking. And he's like, Peter, stop. Stop. Going to get your attention through all of your senses and help you stop your madness. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to show you the cloud and have you feel a temperature difference and the, the difference in the sun. I, I need to get through to you somehow because you're just, you're just talking. You're just yapping. Not, you're not stopping. But this is how we are. Right? God, God's doing some amazing things and we just kind of have our own things and we, we look at suffering and rejection and death. And no, I don't think I want to do that. I want to do this glorious thing. I want to be filthy rich. I want to have comforts of everything. I want to experience all this kind of stuff. I want to do this. I want to fulfill every dream I have and all these wonderful things that you guys are seeing over here. I, I'm the same. And God does these amazing things and has these amazing plans, but then we, we get in the way. We look for people to listen to us, and we listen to other people rather than listening to Jesus. And we have so many distractions calling to us, right, that, that for us to listen to, to, to do things for them, rather than simply listening to Jesus. And so this is something that we're going to reflect upon later, is voices. What, what voices are you listening to? Are you listening to God's, which doesn't always equate to comforts and the, the, the things that we want to chase over here, but they lead to suffering and rejection and death. And yet, what voices are we listening to? Verse 8, And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. I don't know about you, but this is pretty hard not to tell anyone. Like this is, I just saw Moses, and I just saw Elijah, and you want me to be quiet about it. Like, not even talk to my brothers, my, the, you know, the other 12 guys. But, but they, it seems like they did that. And so, again, Jesus telling people not to tell others why, what they had seen. Why is that? Why does Jesus keep doing that? Why does he keep telling people, don't tell them? Don't tell them. Don't tell them. Heals this guy. Don't tell them. Heals this guy. Don't tell them. Heals a leper. Don't tell them. Why does he do this? Because those people, they don't understand it for themselves yet. They don't understand who Jesus is quite yet. Now, verse 10. So they kept the matters to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. So you see, they don't understand. They don't understand what this rising from the dead means until Jesus' resurrection, which we will celebrate next month. And the questions that they had, they didn't ask. 
They had these questions and they didn't ask Jesus about the Son of Man rising from the dead. But then they do ask these other questions, like verse 11, which we'll get into a bit. But, but why didn't the disciples ask about the resurrection of the dead if they had that question? And they had the person who can answer it. Why wouldn't they ask? See, this wasn't a new idea. Jews believe in the resurrection. It is part of their faith. Here's an example of this. John chapter 11, verses 23 and 24, when Lazarus died. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. That is a Jewish faith. That is a Jewish thought. See, Jews believed in the resurrection of the dead on the last day. Martha believed this. And so did the disciples. But they didn't have a concept of a personal resurrection. Their idea was that they understood it as a, a, a general resurrection. That, that it's for all of the dead in the last day. But not this personal resurrection prior to the last day. And so when Jesus told them not to tell anyone until the Son of Man had risen from the dead, they, they questioned if this meant the last day as in, ter in terms of like the end of the age when everybody is raised from the dead. Like, is that what you mean? Because that was their understanding. That's the way that they thought about the resurrection. Or do you mean something else? And what led them to ask the question in verse 11 was driven by their questions about the resurrection. So here we are in the question in verse 11. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? See, they ask this because the, the timeline is off for them. And so they're wondering, like, how do, the way that we thought it was going to work, it doesn't look like it's working that way. And so that's why this question comes, comes out. And this question stems from Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. It reads this. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. See, Jews expect a resurrection. And they expect Elijah before Messiah. That's why in Mark chapter 8, verse 27, when Jesus asked his, his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him in verse 28, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. Some thought Jesus was Elijah, who was to come before Messiah. So some people thought that Jesus was Elijah and fulfilling the prophecy of Malachi. What was challenging to the disciples was that Jesus was already there. The Christ was already in front of them before Elijah came. So they're thinking, like, what's going on here? Was the prophet Malachi wrong? Is Jesus really the Messiah? And if Jesus is the Messiah, then when did Elijah come before Jesus? And so Jesus answered them. Verse 12, Mark chapter 9. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? So Elijah did come. Matthew chapter 11, verses 11 through 15. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there was arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. 
Yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Also, Matthew also, also. Matthew also recorded for us in Matthew chapter 17, verses 10 through 13, this interaction after the transfiguration. Verse 10. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So these difficult to understand statements regarding Elijah the prophet in the Gospel of Mark could be understood by reading Matthew, could be understood by reading Malachi, that they were fulfilled in John the Baptist. What John the Baptist did was, was really kind of punk rock. You know, his, his ministry wasn't a widely accepted one. Um, many people thought he was just absolutely nuts. And it, it just wasn't what they were expecting because they expected Elijah to restore things for the Jewish people, to start laying the groundwork for the Jewish people to come back into power. That's what they were expecting. They weren't expecting some hippie who survived off of locusts and wild honey. Like, they, they weren't expecting that, you know? They weren't expecting some dude who was all about organic, fair trade, grass-fed, pasture-raised, non-GMO, no antibiotics, no hormones ever type stuff. Like, the camel hair garments and leather belt he wore, they were all sustainably sourced, right, and paid people fair wages and all this kind of stuff. And, and actually, John the Baptist founded Patagonia. And so, <laughs> the, the people believed... Elijah would overthrow the Roman tyranny. That's what they thought. They thought, you know, he'd, he's going to reestablish our Jewish way of life. He's going to do that for us. He's going to introduce and, and, and lay the groundwork to end this Roman oppression. But that's not what John the Baptist did. What did he do? He preached repentance. That's what he did. He proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And he baptized people in, in water as this outward symbol of what needed to happen within them. It was a symbol of regeneration, a symbol of restoration. And not a restoration like they thought that they were going to experience with the overthrow of the Roman Empire. But one that would, would bring about this everlasting restoration by grace through faith in Jesus. Our last verse this morning, 13. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. John the Baptist fulfilled the role of Elijah, Elijah the prophet, and he was the forerunner of the Christ, Jesus. He suffered, he was rejected, and he died, just like his Savior, Jesus. He looked at this road. Same thing happened to Jesus. Many people didn't recognize John the Baptist as Elijah, and many people didn't recognize Jesus as the Christ. 
the disciples did, but they didn't quite understand how Elijah fit into the picture. And they're trying to figure this out, which is why they ask the questions, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? So they have this blurry picture of all of this right now. And so it goes back to Mark chapter 8, verse 24. You remember that story where Jesus healed that blind man? And when he healed him, touched him the first time, he told Jesus, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Like, when, like this. They look like this. Not like this. What was happening? See, Jesus will restore their spiritual sight completely so that they can see everything clearly. Right now, they don't see it right away. It's, it's blurry to them. They're, they're, but their spiritual vision, it's getting clearer and clearer. And then with the resurrection and the ascension, and then it gets really clear after Pentecost. It gets really clear. And at this point in chapter 9, it's, it's blurry. It's blurry. They just see trees. Which is why in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 32, Mark recorded that Jesus did this. Did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask. Things were still blurry. Even though Jesus had repeated his teaching to his disciples over and over again about the, the suffering, the rejection, the death, the resurrection, and they didn't understand even after his death and resurrection, they didn't understand. It took a while. I mean, look at Acts chapter 1, verse 6. This is after the resurrection. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? You see, they don't get it. They're still thinking overthrow the Roman Empire. They're still thinking like that. And yet Jesus is so patient. He, he's so loving. He, he suffered, rejected, and he died for them. He died for us. And then he resurrected. And he went through all that suffering, rejection, death. And then he came back to this. To this. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Even after dying and suffering, they still don't get it. You know, he came back to these really super dense people. And what he does, you look at this, he doesn't rebuke them. Verses 7 and 8, he said to them in Acts chapter 1, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. See, they were still thinking about the restoration of the kingdom of Israel, not the kingdom of God. And they didn't get it until the Holy Spirit met them at Pentecost. And this is so much like us. We just don't fully get it. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Sometimes we're so clueless to the will of God and to what God is doing. We're so clueless, we can't see it. And how we need the Holy Spirit. 
I think some people here may have this blurry vision right now. It's really blurry where you have a part of the story and maybe you're like the people here in this story, uh, these disciples, that things are just really blurry and, and then you're, you're hanging out here but you don't really quite get the full picture but you like being here because people are friendly and hospitable and nice and they're loving and caring towards you and they're compassionate and you find community here and you see all these really great elements that you find attractive to be part of this community. And so you're here. But you also know that something's missing. That things are blurry. Maybe you need Jesus to touch you again. Maybe you had an initial touch and you kind of see stuff, but it's just kind of blurry. But maybe you need another touch to be able to know fully and to also to be fully known. Let's pray. Lord, I do lift up the individuals to you, Lord, that have a blurry sense of who you are, the depth of love that you have for them, the depth of compassion that you have for them. I ask, God, that they would be courageous enough to ask you to touch them again, to be honest with you and to let you know things do seem blurry to me. I, I still can't really quite see. And that you would make it really clear to them, Lord, who you are and how much you love them. <clears throat> In Jesus' name, amen.